Oh, good morning, church. How we doing? A little quiet, so we're, we're yeah, I got get where we're at. Well, this morning we are continuing in the third installment of our series about having a passion for God, and we're looking at the seven passion killers that that keep us from God. And as we said in communion, we we need to start off by remembering that passion. This passion that we're talking about for, for God is, is not a feeling or, a mo, or a, a, an emotion, but it's a settled decision in our hearts to serve God through suffering, through joy, through pain, through exhilaration, through whatever circumstance may be as we look beyond the circumstance to the one who provides the way out of the circumstance. And we realize this morning as we've talked about that passion for Jesus is a big issue for the Christian life, isn't it? Because if we don't have passion, what we often struggle with as Christians, even in the church, is the temptation to fall into that sin called apathy. And apathy is horrible because when we find ourselves without passion and in that rut of apathy, as we've talked about, we find that we're one, miserable, right? You ever see a miserable Christian? It's a sad thing to see, right? It's just, it's like, wow, really? You know, what, what happened to you? Because those apathetic Christians become uncaring and unmotivated. They don't want to do anything. They just want to hide out. They, they don't want to serve as the Bible calls them to. They don't want to exemplify Christ or open their Bible to read the word of God provided for them. They just don't care. I've heard of churchgoers who have been apathetic for decades, and you noticed I didn't say Christians, I said what? <coughs> churchgoers. The Bible talks about not only will there there'll be sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing that infiltrate the church, but there will be many in church that really are not Christians in salvation because you see not everyone who attends church is a Christian. Just being in church doesn't make you a Christian like osmosis, just like being born into a, a family where your parents or your grandparents were Christians doesn't make you a Christian by generation. You and I must choose to have salvation clearly. So we fight against the situation of synthetic Christians, of false Christians who fill churches who are apathetic. You see, I think in salvation in Jesus Christ, we may struggle with the temptation of apathy from time to time, but I don't think that as a Christian we can be apathetic for decades. Because the Bible plainly tells us that the old life that we once had before Jesus, that, that old life that likes to cling on to misery and woe is me and, and I can't forgive and apathy has what? It's passed away. And the Bible says, and behold, we are a new creation. And not only are we a new creation, we are filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that as Christians, apathy can enter our spiritual lives, but sooner or later, for Christians, there will be a quickening, a little poking, a little jabbing of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm here, you are the, the temple, the dwelling place, the church of the Holy Spirit. You can't be apathetic. And I believe for Christians, sooner or later, through someone or a circumstance, the Holy Spirit will quicken us to do something, to take action, to get out of our apathy, right? 
those of you that have been Christians for more than three days, have you experienced that? Where maybe you've been down in the dumps and you've actually clung on to that, enjoyed being down, down in the dumps and getting all that attention? And the Holy Spirit's like, hey, bonehead, what are you doing? Come on, you have the joy of the Lord. You need to, to be content with godliness. You need to share the joy of God. Consider it all joy no matter what you go through. We have that quickening of the Holy Spirit as we realize we are forgiven. That old life has passed away. The life we now live, we live for Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have all reason to be joyful. But for the unsaved who fill the churches, the synthetic Christians, there is no quickening of the Holy Spirit. And I'll say it very, very clearly for those listening. The only hope that a synthetic Christian has is salvation in Jesus Christ. And for my opinion only, for what it's worth, those synthetic Christians who fill the church and say and wear the, the banner of Christ and say they are Christian, but are always depressed or always down in the dumps, always have a woe story and just can't seem to be happy or claim the promises of God, those synthetic Christians who just can't forgive because you don't know what they've done to me, don't know the risen Lord Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. Because as we talk about the passion killers that keep us from a passion for God, again, with the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, I don't think we can live a life that way with the Holy Spirit. If you're hearing this message or you're here and you're struggling with, I just can't forgive, I just can't overcome, then you need to look at the Bible and your salvation. Because... The Bible calls us overcomers, conquerors. In fact, it says you are more than conquerors. In biblical salvation, we cannot stay in apathy, can we? We can do nothing but forgive because we realize the impact, the weight of the forgiveness that Jesus has forgiven us, our sins. So we are compelled to forgive we are compelled to put the past in the past. We are compelled to have a love that covers all wrongdoings and a multitude of sins. We are compelled to have the joy of the Lord and live with passion, with endurance. That's why our homework for the last couple Sundays has been so important in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 to 7. If you want to turn with me there, 2 Corinthians 13, and then we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 to 7 state this. Test yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you what? You fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. As we talk about passion and passion killers, which we must stop, we talk about the rut, the temptation of apathy, we must realize that if we test ourselves, if we find ourselves in decades, in years, in months of unforgiveness, of woe is me, of depression, we may need to test ourselves biblically 
against the word of God for our salvation. Now, I'm not saying that depression is not a real thing. There are folks who struggle with depression, but I still believe that the Holy Spirit quickens and ignites us to share the joy of God, the good news message of the gospel, and the blessings that God has given us. And even in depression, to still be thankful and joyful for what God has given us, and to go out and be in fellowship where God calls us to be and not to isolate because the Holy Spirit gives us the power to overcome and to do so. We've been looking at seven things, seven passion killers that we must stop doing that hinder our passion for God before we can start living for God. The Bible tells us to be on the alert to not sleep. And we know that the Bible tells us also that our enemy, the devil, prowls looking for souls to devour. So we must be alert and awake and on guard of these seven passion killers so that we do not let these temptations sink into our life to keep us from a passion for God. Because passion for God is truly important for the, for the Christian because it's what drives us to fully live for Jesus Christ. Passion for God keeps us close to God especially in those times of trouble and, and, and trial. Passion for God compels us to live eternal lives and not temporal lives just for ourselves. Passion for God brings us into the realm of enjoying God's promises and knowing that we are living a purposeful life, an abundant life, a joyful life in Jesus, and that if we never receive anything else, we can be more than satisfied. And the passion for God that we have emulates the passion that God had for us when he brought us salvation. In essence, I truly believe that passion for God is evidence that we are in the family of God. 1 Corinthians tells us a very strong truth that before a seed can sprout and live, it must first do something to itself. And do you know what that is? It must die to itself. And in these seven passion killers, we must realize that we must die to that old life that seeks to hold on to those woes and unforgiveness and those pains and those hurts and that shame because Christ has died that we might have life and might have life abundant. And even in salvation, there are times in the life of a Christian, there are seasons that we do fall into the temptation of apathy. We must realize that we must die to that once again, in the life that we now live, we must live for Jesus Christ. We've looked at four passion killers so far, and this is what they are. Number one, an unbalanced schedule. Either working too much and driving ourselves crazy, or being too lazy and doing nothing. Number two, we have looked at the fact of a passion killer is an unused talent that God gives us gifts and talents not to be used for our own personal gain, but for what? For serving others in the kingdom of God. The third passion was more personal with an unconfessed sin that if we hold on to unconfessed sin, it slowly eats and erodes away at our passion for God. And the fourth one we looked at last week was, again, a more personal passion killer, which is an unresolved conflict. 
when we choose to not have reconciliation, when we choose to not forgive, when we choose to hold on to that transgression, and we ignore what the Bible says, that love covers a multitude of sins, it keeps us from fully serving God. There's the story of a wise old man who once lived in the mountains. And once a year, this wise old sage would come down to the small village at the base of the mountains. And he was renowned for being able to know what people tried to hide from him. Well, two young boys had heard about the legend of this wise old sage, and they decided to trick the old man when he came to town and to prove that he was a fraud. They devised a plan that they would catch a small bird before he came. They would catch this little bird in a trap, and one of the boys would hold the bird behind his back, and when the wise old man came down, they would ask him what they had hidden behind his back. And if the wise old man answered correctly, they would ask the wise old man, is the bird alive or is the bird dead? And if the wise old man said the bird was dead, well, the boy would release the bird. But if the old man said the bird was alive, the boy would cruelly crush the bird in his hands and it would fall to the ground. Well, the day came when the wise old man came down from the mountain and the boys ran in eager desire and envy to discredit the old man. And as he entered the village, the people began to gather around and the boys ran up to the old man and they said, old man, what does my friend hold behind his back? And the old man said, well, it's simple. He holds a bird. And the crowd was like, yeah, that's amazing. And then the coy boy looked at the old man. He says, old man, is the bird alive or is the bird dead? And the old man looked sternly as the boy, as the boy began to slyly grin like the Grinch in his anticipation of his victory. And the old man said, the bird is as you choose. As Christians, our lives are like that, aren't they? Our lives are as we choose. That if we choose to claim the promises of God, if we choose to show that we are Christians by obedience to our Lord and Savior, if we choose to live the Christian life to consider the cost of discipleship, then we choose to live a life of joy and abundance and of overcoming and of promise and of hope and of service and fellowship. But we have another choice, don't we? We can choose another choice. That even though within us in the Holy Spirit is the complete power of God, even though we have salvation in Jesus Christ and our sins have been completely forgiven, even though we have the promise of heaven and the call to obedience to prove our love and our, our place in the kingdom and the family of God, we can choose live in apathy, to be a victim of circumstance or the victim of an unrepairable wound by another person that we just claim that we cannot forgive the wrong done. Because you see, when you and I are a victim, it's tempting. Do you know why it's tempting to be a victim? Because it's out of your control. You have no control on what happens to you. And I'll tell you clearly, that is completely unbiblical. 
you and I have a choice in how we respond to being wounded. You and I have a choice in how we respond to any circumstance that God gives us. And God promises in his word that in this world, because of sin and a failed world and failed people, we will have what? Trials and temptations. But we are never destined to fail them. In Jesus Christ, we are destined to overcome them. We are destined to have a love unabandoned, uncontrollable because of Christ's love for us. We are destined to make a choice that we will never be a victim. We will never be the result of a consequence of a circumstance or another person who uncontrollably controls our life and we are just helpless. The Bible never refers to Christians as helpless or victims. The Bible always refers to us who have a choice to be joyful in all situations and circumstances, to overcome, to conquer, and even to joyfully be willing to suffer for Christ. It can be a hard message, can't it? A tough reminder. But when we realize the passion that Christ had for us and his life, his crucifixion, his death, his beating, his overcoming death, it seems pale in comparisons, doesn't it? The truth is in salvation and in Jesus Christ, all the things that those people and all the things that those circumstances try and do to us do not determine our lives and they do not determine the impact upon our lives because we have the Holy Spirit and the very power of God with us. Our life in Christ, our passion, is as we choose. And so today, as we look at these passion killers in a somber message, I encourage you, I compel you to choose life, to choose life in Christ. We must realize as we talk about passion and avoiding the seven passion killers that we are responsible for reigniting our passion for God if it has dwindled and faded and grown cold. It is well within us as God has provided for us all things that it is well within our ability to change if we will only do so. It is not up to somebody else. In fact, I hate to tell you this, but it's not up to your pastor. Your pastor can poke you and prod you all he can, and all you're going to do is get annoyed, right? <laughs> and it's not God's responsibility to reignite your passion either. Do you know why? Because he has initially given you that passion in your life in the gift of his grace and salvation through his only begotten son in Jesus Christ. And once you and I have that salvation, that passion, Jesus says, go because you are salt and a light to the world, and a light should not be what? Covered. And it goes to further say that a, night, a light should not be put out or dwindled. So therefore, let your light shine that all the world may see. As we looked at our quote for the week with John Wesley, he says, I prayed that God would set me on fire for all the world to see. That's a passion. God, isn't it? 
God set me on fire and let the world watch me burn in a good way. Jesus calls us to follow and obey. That's all we must do. We look at passion killer number five as we seek to avoid this to reignite our passion for God. And passion number five is simply an unsupported lifestyle. Sometimes you and I lose our passion for God simply because we are not hanging around God's people, right? Either that or we are hanging around the wrong group of God's people in the church, you know. You have your people that are kind of on fire here, your, your, your new Christians, those who are in Bible study, they're saying, man, you know what God taught me this week? You know, you know what God's doing in my life? And, you know, you have your little Pentecostal group all their back there going, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know. And then you have your Eeyores over in the corner going, oh, yeah, I don't think God blessed me this week. Christians, don't hang out with those people. Let them slowly dwindle and fade down to one and down to none because they realize they are not the popular kids at church, right? We need to be in fellowship. And if you're hearing this message online, my challenge to you is this. If you are hiding out at home and not being in church, shame on you. You need to be in church. The biblical command of God to not avoid the fellowship, as some do, because God designed us to be in fellowship, to be in connection with one another. We are like a bunch of Legos that have to interconnect with each other to make something. Besides that, Ecclesiastes 4 tells us this. If you want to be there in Ecclesiastes 4, then we'll jump back to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 6. Ecclesiastes 4 and 2 Corinthians 6. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 to 10 tell us this this direct truth from the Word of God. It says, two are better than one. Well, you may read that and say, why? And God goes on the answer. He says, two are better than one because if one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man. We'll do it in Mr. T style. But pity the fool who falls down and has no one to help him up. You see why God calls us in the fellowship? Because God says, you will have times of struggle and apathy. You will fall down. You will bind to that temptation. But when you're around other Christians, they will bear that load with you. And not only will they bear that load with you, they will <coughs> reach out the hand to clasp onto to bring you back up to raise you up out of that apathy. Two are better than one, but pity the man who falls down with no one to help him up. That's why this thing called island Christianity, solo Christianity, is so dangerous to our passion and our faith because it keeps us from fellowship. And because of COVID and the commands to stay home, this is a tragedy in our nation right now that 30% of the church has not gone back to church, to fellowship, but they have camped out in their home thinking, I can watch it online or listen to a message and I'll be okay. Well, you won't. God made us to be in relationship with one another. And let me put it this way in a worldly term that's not even a biblical term to show you that we need to be in relationship with each other. Anybody in, ever, in here ever been in prison? Go ahead, raise your hand. No, don't do that. I don't want to know. Okay, Richard, Ken, all right. Anyway. <laughs> if you are in prison, 
you are incarcerated and locked up for your crimes. But if you're a really bad person in prison, there's a further prison inside a prison. There's that prison inside a prison because you're really, really bad. Do you know what they do if you are unruly or bad in prison? If you don't get along with the other kids in prison, you know where they put you? Where? Say the word. Solitary. Why do they stick you in solitary? To punish you. Because even the world knows that we need to be in relationship, even if it's not good relationship, we need relationship. And that if they're going to punish you, they're going to put you in a little cell in the dark that's cold and maybe damp, and you are isolated, cut off from the rest of the world, and it drives you nuts. You see, even the world knows that if they're going to punish a person and make them suffer, they lock them in solitary confinement where they have no access to human touch, human conversation, interaction, relationship, and it dampens their spirit, right? There are Christians who sadly place themselves in solitary confinement and wonder why their passion has left them and wonder why they are down and wonder why they struggle. Well, if you're that Christian and you're placing yourself in solitary confinement, I'll tell you this, God has the keys to open the doors and get out and go to church. Be in a supported lifestyle, not in an unsupported lifestyle. Now, I've talked to those over the years who isolate themselves and say they're okay. They have all the excuses, right? But when it comes down to it, isolation from God and his people is literally just pride and rebellion, and it's unbiblical. It's disobedience to God, yes? We need to be in fellowship. Second, when we talk about fellowship, we need to choose the right fellowship. 2 Corinthians 6.14, and then we'll be in Hebrews 10. 2 Corinthians 6.14 states this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what believer has in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the living temple of God. When we choose to be in fellowship, to be in a balanced lifestyle, we must choose to be in the right fellowship. And I'll take that one step further. That means we need to be in a biblical teaching church with fellowship with other believers that are excited about their relationship with God and what God is doing in and through them. We need to be sharing that together. But here's the challenge with that that many people struggle with. They come into church and they're talking with someone about a non-salvation issue and someone disagrees with them and hurts their feelings. Have you ever had that happen? Another Christian in church doesn't agree with your outlook on something that's not a salvation issue, and you're like, I thought we're all supposed to get along. Do you know that God gives us different gifts and personalities and brings different people into the church? And they're different than us, right? 
And you know what? In God's kingdom, different is good. Because different sharpens us. Different makes us think about why we believe what we believe. Different makes us consider going back into the Word of God to see if they may be right or we're right. Different is good because it makes us better people. You know what I thought in my pride in the world that, man, if everyone was just like me, the world would be a great place. Woohoo! Don't you think so? If everyone was like John, it'd be awesome. Eight billion Johns in the world. I mean, I tried that when we first got married. I tried to name all of our children Justin John Porter and Austin John Porter and Jeremy Dot John Porter and Dog John Porter and Cat Dog Porter and Christy John Porter. Christy wouldn't go for it. Thank God. <laughs> right? You know what? Of all the 8 billion people in John in the world were John Porters, life would get really boring fast because we'd all agree all the time. There'd be no challenges. There'd be no, no questioning of, why are you doing that? Why do you believe that? Where do you see that in the Word of God? There'd be no growth. Because you see, to have growth, to go through Christian growing pains, we have to go through changes and adjustments that change our lifestyle. You ever see, especially a boy that hasn't caught up in his feet in puberty and how they walk? Like, they are so clumsy, right? But then when they finally grow into their feet, they get this stride and this walk. We need to be in church with good, solid biblical teaching and good, solid biblical Christians, but we need to realize we also need to learn in this biblical fellowship to appreciate the differences of others, as long as it doesn't come against salvation issues. Because it makes us grow, it sharpens us, it makes us question ourselves of, where is that really found in the Bible? It makes us go back to the Word of God to share with one another to say, you look at that that way, why do you see it that way? Because here's how I see it. Let's dig into this and find out what is truth. What is God's truth? Not opinion, not perception, not taking verses out of context. So in avoiding this passion killer of an unbalanced lifestyle, we need to be in fellowship. And we need to be in a church that challenges us and grows us. Because if we all just agree all the time, there's no growth, is there? There's just stagnation. This unbalanced lifestyle, when Christians start to sink into this temptation, it's actually very easy to see because the first thing they do is they start being out of fellowship. And I'm not just talking about not being in church. They can be in church for a while, but they start having a passion, a yearning for the things of God. They stop having a passion to serve other people. And then the second thing that happens, it's very clear to see, is their heart begins to turn cold, right? And when your heart turns cold for God, you don't want to be around anything or anyone that talks about God, right? So if you're struggling with those two things, if you begin to realize that you're apathetic and you're in the church and you're a Christian or you're isolating or your heart is turning cold, the call to avoid this temptation of an unbalanced lifestyle is to get back in fellowship. To purposely go, even though it may be uncomfortable, to be in a church where they preach the hard word of God and not just tell you that life will always be happy, butterflies and rainbows and unicorns that the pastor challenges you and I to deal with the issues in our life, to test ourselves, to see if we are of the faith, 
to do the, God, the good things of God and yes, to enjoy his joy and fellowship, but to make sure that we are in the Lord. Because Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 tells us what this is what we must do to avoid this passion killer of an unbalanced lifestyle. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up the meeting together and let us encourage one another. You see, that's what we do in church. We don't just worship and share and hear the word of God and, and, and test ourselves. We encourage one another. And if you're a Christian who feels your heart is growing cold, I want you to take notice of the first part of this verse in Hebrews 10, 24. It says, let us consider, think about, ponder, make a plan of how we may, what? Spur one another on, spur others on. That means when you walk into church, you're just not like, oh, here I am, please pay attention to me. As a Christian, we're called to walk into church and be like, hey, what can I do for you? How can I bless you? How can I serve you today? What can I do? I mean, we'll throw Tara under the bus this morning because she has such a good fit under there as a Christian, you know? This morning we came in and we had worship practice and we just looked at Tara we're like, Tara, can you unload everything in the trunk? And can you do communion? And can you set this up? And can you bring all the Operation Christmas Child up and set all this stuff in there? And her answer was deliberate. She's like, yes, I'd love to. It's good to be under the bus, isn't it? You see, her heart's desire was not just to come to the church to receive because she knew she would get that. Her heart's desire was use me where you need me, where I can help, where I can bless let me do these practical things so you guys can prepare worship that I may enjoy and join in worship later on and praise the Lord. We are called as Christians to consider how we may come together to spur one another on, not to draw attention to ourselves. We need to be in a supportive lifestyle as Christians to avoid this passion killer. We need to give. We need to serve. We need to encourage one another. The sixth passion killer that we'll look at is this as we close for the day. An unclear purpose. An unclear purpose. When you and I forget the purpose that God has placed us here for, it can dwindle and kill and delete our passion, can't it? Because we start asking those questions again about, what good am I? What am I doing here? I mean, what's the point? What's the purpose? They won't even notice if I don't show up. I don't have anything to give. We need to remember the reasons that God has called us to salvation. But sometimes we relate with Isaiah in Isaiah 49 where the prophet was going through a deep depression after doing this great miraculous thing for God. And he says, I've labored to no purpose and I've spent my strength in vain for nothing. You see, even the mighty prophet of God, after doing a miracle, struggled with depression. It's going to happen, right? But we need to pull ourselves out of there to reignite that passion for God, to remember our purpose. Because you see, passion and purpose go together. We've got to remember God's purpose in our life. Because if we're only living for ourselves, well, that's a pretty dinky purpose. And that leads us into the rut of apathy because we're only looking at us. We're not doing what God's called us to, to serve others, to seek the word of God, to, to share in the joy of the Lord, to spur one another on. 
God has given you a specific purpose in life. In fact, I think God has given you several purposes in life. We know one is to share the gospel. We know one is to live in the joy of the Lord. We know one is to seek the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. We know one is to live life and life abundantly. We know one is to be in fellowship. The comic writer Hobbes wrote this about passion. I think it's quite interesting. He said this about passion, quote, Passion is waking up in the morning wherever you are and bounding out of bed because you know there's something out there that you love to do, that you believe in, and that God made you for, and you're good at it. Something that's bigger than you are and you can hardly wait to get at it again. It's that something that you'd rather be doing than anything else and you wouldn't give it up for money, fame, or anything because it means more to you than money or fame. Passion and purpose are important, isn't it? And if you've lost your purpose, as we close up, I'll remind you very quickly and shortly of what the purpose of every Christian is. And it's wonderful. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of those great things of the church that kind of surmises the entirety of the Bible and what Christians believe. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks a question. It says, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is your purpose in life? What are you living for? And you know what the answer is? If you don't, I'm going to tell you so you'll pass the test. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is your purpose? And it answers this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That means we enjoy God in eternity and we enjoy God when? Now. And this life we now live, we seek to give God glory in whatever that is and however we do it. It doesn't always mean we'll be happy, happy, happy but it means we serve with a passion because we are serving the one and only King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God Almighty who brought us salvation, who redeemed us, who saved us from the, the, the consequence of hell and forgave our sins with his love. We have this God who designed us to intertwine with other people and impact their lives and touch the lives of each other. We serve a God who, who created us with such importance and love that we are none like each other. And our desire, our passion, is to glorify God with all we are and to enjoy Him for all eternity. Nothing matters more than that. Let me give you five reasons why God has you here. God has you here to worship God in private and in public. God has you here to have times of fellowship, to be with other believers, to do what? Not to draw attention to yourself, but to what? To spur one another on. God has you here to read his word, to grow from spiritual infancy, infancy to spiritual maturity and adulthood. God has you here to do, have a ministry, a service where you glorify God by serving others. Whether it's taking everything out of a trunk or, or leading a worship service or, or playing the, the, the electric piano 
or running the PowerPoint, or being the official light technician of Wasatch Christian Church. It's a ministry of serving others that they may enjoy the fellowship and the reading of God's Word and the worship and the study of God's Word. And God has you here for mission. Whether it's mission to the ends of the world or mission in your own family and neighborhood, God has given you at least those five purposes to glorify Him and to know that you are here on purpose, a purpose designed and given and blessed by God to be important, to touch the world, to impact the world, that you and I would have a passion for God to avoid the passion killers. Sound good? We may not always share the emotion of passion, but we can all share in the endurance of passion because we believe in a God that is greater, a God that is good, a God that loved us with a passion so we love him in like manner, a God that created us, touched the world to carry on the ministry, the gospel, the good news message of Jesus Christ. And that's worthwhile living, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, even for challenging messages to avoid the passion killers of our life and to realize that we need to draw back to you, Lord, that if we are like that coal that has removed ourselves from the fire, we begin to draw, be, be, be hard. We begin to, to lose the warmth within us. And the very thing we need to do is to get back into the burning of that fire, to be reignited. God, we pray that you would move in our hearts, that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever, that we would realize the importance of why you have placed us here, that, that we are all here with purpose and with mission. And we carry not only your name, but we literally carry on your message, your good news gospel to the world. God, thank you for trusting in us so much. Thank you for empowering us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for passion. To you be the kingdom and the glory forever and ever.